Well, please turn back with me in our Bibles uh, this evening uh, to the book of Exodus and turning to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20 and beginning our reading uh, at verse 1 and you'll find this on page 61 in the church Bibles. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Well, this evening we are turning back uh, to looking at the Ten Commandments, and we have been looking at the Ten Commandments, highlighting that this summary of the law uh, that is given to us here has always had an integral part in the life of faith of God's people. Uh, down through the centuries, it has been uh, the backbone uh, for understanding the life of faith because the law of God is what exposes us to God's will. It exposes us to what is right and what is good, what is true, what is beautiful how we are designed to live and to flourish. And yet the law confronts us about our own hearts because it shows us uh, where we lack. It shows us something about ourselves that causes us to realize that we are, we are uh, not what we are meant to be, that we fall short of God's uh, will, that we are corrupt in God's sight. And so the law is important because it, it forces us, it drives us outside of ourselves to seeing the need of a savior. It shows us why we need someone to save us from our sins, because we're sinners. But the law of God continues to have a vital role uh, beyond showing us our problem, beyond showing us our need of Jesus. The law of God also provides us a context for understanding how do we express gratitude to God? How do we live a life of thanksgiving devoted to God's will? And God's law shows us what is good and what is true and beautiful. And so the law of God continues to have a, uh, a place in the, the life of faith, not to make us right with God, but rather showing us how to express our thankfulness to God. And last time we looked at the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. That God uh, highlights that he alone is to be worshipped as God. That we are to be devoted unto him above all else. That he is our, our, our center of life. That he alone is to be given worship that is due to the creator. That he alone is to be worshipped uh, above all else. Because no one can have two masters. And this law becomes foundational uh, in many ways, but it is a priority in the life of faith because it grounds everything else. Because God is, we are to live in this way. 
And without that foundation, we don't have an objective basis for right and wrong. Without that understanding of God, we have no universal standard by which people are bound to. But this law uh, highlights for us that we are to acknowledge God above all else. But this evening we're turning to the second commandment and you can, you can feel the connection between these commandments. The first commandment is telling us who is to be worshipped. You shall have no other gods before me. God alone, the living God, the Lord is to be worshipped. The second commandment is how this God is to be worshipped. That it tells us that we are to come before God and to worship him according to his will. That we're not, to, we're not free to choose to worship any way we want, but that we are to worship him according to his commands. This has sometimes been summarized uh, in church history as the regulative principle of worship. All that means is, is that our worship of God is to be regulated, it's to be controlled, it's to be governed by this mindset that God determines how God is worshipped. That it's not ultimately our decision that shapes our worship of God, but it's God's will that is to be done. And so as we come to worship, our question shouldn't be first, how do I want to worship? But our first question should be, how has God revealed to us that we are to worship him? And so this evening we want to see that because God has revealed to us how he is to be worshipped, we are to come before him, we have access before him through the Son and by the work of the Holy Spirit. But we want to look at this commandment as we did the first one with that framework that we highlighted before, that each commandment uh, reveals to us something about God, each commandment confronts us about ourselves, each commandment instructs us in the way to go, and each commandment affords us a promise that is ultimately fulfilled uh, in and through the Lord Jesus. So first we want to ask the question, what does this command reveal about God? And it's told to us very explicitly in this command, God tells us that uh, uh, we are not to make a carved image of any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. This commandment was based on the grounds that God is a jealous God. Now, you young people, when you hear the word jealous, what do you think of? We oftentimes think of jealous or jealousy in its negative sense. We think of a strong desire for something that doesn't belong to us. We might be jealous if someone gets something, a gift, that we wish was ours. Uh, we might be jealous of what they get to enjoy. We might be jealous of the accomplishments of someone else. We want that, but it belongs to someone else. We really are using the word jealousy oftentimes like we would use the word envy. But we can also speak about jealousy in a positive sense. When you have a strong desire for something that does belong to you. You are jealous or you are zealous to protect it. And oftentimes in scripture this word jealous is used in the context of marriage. When a, a man and a woman are married together, when a husband and wife come together, there is this bond, a, a bond of trust between them. 
And any husband is going to be jealous for the love from his wife. Any wife will be jealous for the love that is due to her through that marriage bond. This belongs to the other. And that's what binds them together in a marriage. It is, it is to be given to them. It is to be only to be given to them. And so in that, that marriage bond, there are things that belong to the husband and to the wife, a love and affection and commitment and faithfulness that are to be directed only to them. A husband is not going to be careless or indifferent if his wife is loving someone else. They would say, that belongs in the marriage covenant. That belongs to me. And now here we see that language being used about God, that God is jealous or zealous about what belongs to him and what belongs to God, the glory that is due from his creatures, that God is zealous to protect what belongs to him. He is God and he is to be reverenced. He is to be feared. He is to be lived in awe of and honored as such. He is our maker, and he has made us to enjoy him. And so when God creates his people, when he calls his people unto serving him, he is zealous to protect his glory. And so here, this whole commandment is couched in the fact that God is deeply invested in his people giving him the worship that is due to his name, that he wants his people to adore him for who he is. But attached to this uh, commandment is a warning. You see that there in verse 5, for I am the Lord your God. Uh, uh, I am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. There's a warning here about worshiping a God or using carved images that is displeasing in God's sight. And the warning is, is that God will punish future generations. We might wonder, why is it that the children are going to be punished for the sins of their parents or their ancestors? But here, what is being communicated is a truth that we, we can resonate with. That oftentimes, extended family live within the boundaries of one another. And one generation crosses over into another generation. That one generation lives into multiple generations and that their actions set a trajectory and a style and a mode of life that has influences beyond their own time period. That where the extended family lives together, the oldest does not live to itself, but sets the agenda for those who come after it. So all of this actually undergirds the importance of how our actions have consequences. That it can be for good or it can have a trajectory of uh, uh, ill on future generations. But this commandment about God is concerned about his glory. That God will reveal his glory according to his will in his way but he is determined that his glory is given to none other and that it is given to him as he is. And so this commandment is told to the people of God, you cannot worship me, worship me any way you want. You will worship according to my command. 
and God commands the people not to make any graven image. Why does God have to make that command? Uh, it's, uh, it's highlighting for us uh, that we are living in acknowledgement of his revelation. Uh, that worship that is displeasing in God's sight is worship that is divorced from his will. Uh, making any representation of the living God or the use of uh, images in worship. This doesn't mean that God is against all visual arts. Uh, you can look at the tabernacle, you can look at the temple, you can see how all kinds of shapes and colors uh, are incorporated into the meeting place between God and his people. God uses flowers, God uses palm trees, God uses uh, uh, various things uh, that communicate beauty. Uh, even in the meeting places of the temple and the tabernacle. But what is emphasized was is that there was no form given to God in the temple. And the explanation is given because you saw no form at Sinai. When the law of God was given, when God met with the people, they saw no form. And so they weren't to make a form. They weren't to represent God in the temple, in their own worship. But this commandment is given uh, then uh, recognizing that it is according to God's will. Um, but part of the reason, as we were saying, as we were singing from Psalm 135, that God uh, recognizes the, the tendency to make God into our own image. Uh, and God is, he is, he is concerned that his glory would be according to uh, his own revelation and not to our own uh, intuition. So why is it that God has to make this commandment uh, to us? Uh, part of the reason is because the surrounding nations all had physical idols. Uh, the nations around Israel would have used physical idols in their worship. And part of the attraction of that is it, it gives a visual. The, the visual is a very powerful means of attracting and of uh, captivating someone. But it also provides a direct encounter with, uh, with uh, their idea of the God or with an idol in order to get what they want. One example of that, even in Israel, is when you think back to the book of Samuel. You remember when Israel was going out to fight against the Philistines, they wanted to take what represented uh, uh, the presence of God, the Ark of the Covenant. They wanted to take that out to battle against the Philistines because they thought if we can take that out, then we are assured of victory. And that was the mindset of the nations. If we have an idol, then we have a way of controlling God that we can manipulate it to our own ends to get it to do what we want. That if we offer up these sacrifices to this idol, then it not only, not only solidifies us, but it also uh, is something that we can get what we want. So Israel was taught that when they come to worship God, they are to do it in response to God's revelation. When you come before God, you come as one who is sinful before a holy God. You don't have a direct encounter with God. You have a mediated encounter with God. You come before God according to his revelation. It's through the mediation of God's servants, the prophets, the priests, the kings, 
This is the way that you will know God's favor. This is the way in which you will come to meet with your God. Mediated because you're sinful before a holy God according to his revelation. So biblical worship then is to be shaped by God's revealed will. So this commandment teaches us about God that he is concerned about his own glory. The commandment teaches us something about ourselves as well. Just as the nations around were attracted to uh, physical idols, it was part in part so they could manipulate the gods to get what they want, but also in part because they could represent the gods as they wished. That as a craftsman can craft an idol to depict or to communicate what they want, so they can communicate, they can craft an image of the creator in their own way. Much like a person who goes to look down a deep well and they are looking to search to see what is at the bottom of the well. But ultimately what they see is a reflection of the their own selves or what their own desires are. We can begin to craft uh, an image of God that really re resembles our own desires rather than humbly acknowledges what God says about himself. So here we're seeing something of uh, our own selves as well, a tendency to try to control God, a tendency perhaps to try and craft God in our own image, but ultimately God guarding his own glory and how he is revealed and how he is known. Now this question of uh, no images uh, really uh, inevitably comes to the question, how do we understand this commandment today? Um, how do we understand this commandment in light of the incarnation? In light of the fact that the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, took on a human nature and lived amongst us. Does this commandment still apply or, or does this commandment, uh, has it been abrogated? Many have looked at the incarnation and have concluded that uh, the incarnation justifies the making of images. But down through the centuries, there have been many Christians who have not uh, believed uh, that it is appropriate, that it's not appropriate to make an image of any person of the Trinity. And they have had strong reasons for that. Included in them uh, is our understanding of the person of Jesus. That when we think about Jesus, we should not, we should not separate the divine nature and the human nature. That when we think about the human nature of Jesus, we are thinking about the person of the Son of God. That's why in Revelation, when John saw the risen Lord, he fell down dead, as though dead. That he was recognizing not just the human nature, but he was recognizing the person who is all glorious. And so our understanding of the person of Jesus, we're not confusing the natures but neither are we trying to separate them by saying it's just the human nature. The person stands behind our understanding of the nature. But also, uh, Christians have objected to uh, the images of Jesus, not just because of our understanding of who Jesus is as fully God and fully man, but also because of the presence of Jesus. We should not ignore the focus of the New Testament itself. The New Testament writers do not give any indication of the need of a visible image. That's significant, isn't it? The New Testament doesn't give us any hint of needing to have images. 
There's a lack of even trying to give us aids for understanding the image of Jesus. Before Jesus ascended into heaven, he stressed the reality of his presence. He said, I am always with you, even to the end of the age. In the context of telling his disciples to go out and to make disciples of all nations, the Lord stressed his presence is with us. We know the presence of God. We don't need to have an image to try to feel that direct encounter. God's presence has been made known to us. And Jesus stresses his presence is with his people by the Spirit and through the proclamation of his word and through the signs that he has given to us. Why does Jesus tell his disciples to go out and to teach? That is how Christ's presence is communicated through the Spirit. Why does he tell his disciples to go out and to baptize? Because Christ's presence is communicated through the work of the Spirit in baptism. That Christ's presence is made known through these visual signs and through this proclamation of the gospel. Even the Apostle Peter uh, stresses this focus in his own letters. He says that uh, we received honor and glory, uh, when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the mountain. Peter says, we saw the transfiguration. But rather, than, but rather than trying to portray the glories of what he saw, Peter then turns the focus and says, and we have something more sure, the prophetic word, which you will do well to try to pay attention to as a lamp shining in a dark place. So God's presence is communicated to us not through a physical representation of him, but by the mysterious work of the Spirit. That's what the writer of Hebrews was stressing. That in worship, in a mysterious way, the Spirit is actually lifting us up into the heavenly places. That we know of the presence of God. That we have an encounter with our God through the Spirit by the mediation of the Lord Jesus. And so the focus of the New Testament is not on trying to craft our own image of God, but rather by responding to what God has revealed in Jesus Christ. So why is it that some Christians don't use images of Jesus? Why they don't make images of Jesus? Or why they don't use them as windows through which to worship God? It's because of their understanding of Jesus. It's because they understand he is both fully man and fully God, and they don't want to separate those. It's because they understand that the, the presence of Jesus is communicated to them even now through the work of the Spirit. And it is by the word and the sacraments that they are to be upheld and sustained in worship. And it's because of the promise of Jesus. Part of the reason for why Christians object to the making of images of Jesus is because they understand that God unveils his glory himself. Rather than trying to depict the glory of God, rather than trying to uh, do it ourselves, Jesus is the revelation of God's glory. Jesus says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And so in the fullness of time, God's glory is revealed through the Lord Jesus Christ. But 
On top of that, Jesus also promises that blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Revelation 22 says they will see his face and his name will be on their heads. 1 John 3 says we shall see him as he is. And what you begin to see is, is that in the New Testament there is there's a tension. Because this encounter, this, this beholding of the image of God's glory is something that awaits a greater fulfillment. That images of Jesus, we could say, almost flatten the drama of salvation. Peter draws this out in his first letter. He says, though you do not now see him, you love him. Do you feel that? Peter says, you don't now see him. You don't. But you will. Right now, you live loving the grace of God that has been made known to you but you will see him. And that's the tension that the Christian is to live with. The expectation that one day we will see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so rather than thinking about this commandment as a, simply as a negative, well, why can't we have this or why shouldn't we use images? We should think about this commandment as a tension that is saying God is so concerned about his glory that he will reveal it himself in his own way. He has revealed it in and through the Son of God who came into this world to reveal God's glory. And we see God's glory in Jesus Christ. But we live now knowing that we're waiting to see it ourselves. One person has said that, that grace uh, prepares us for glory in the same way faith prepares us for sight. That's a good way of putting it. Grace, the grace of God has appeared preparing us for glory. The glory of God that will appear. Faith has come. Faith prepares us for seeing God ourselves in the face of Jesus Christ. And so, however we think about images of Jesus, we should be thinking about it as the glory of God. And a concentration that God is zealous and jealous about his glory. That we would worship him as he is and not according to our own imaginations. Not according to our own wishes. But rather humbly and in subservience to his revelation. There was a televangelist uh, who once said, The great error of the Reformation was that it was God-centered rather than man-centered. And he went on to say, because man's greatest need is self-esteem. Our greatest need is self-esteem. If you believe our greatest need is self-esteem, then your worship will be centered on self. Your worship of God will ultimately be tailored to what you want. And it will eclipse what does God require? What does God command? And so here, this commandment might sound rigid, it might sound like it's boxing us in, but it's really saying, what shapes the way that we approach God? Is it my will be done? Or is what has God revealed about how I come to him in worship? Cain and Abel. Cain offers his worship to God. It's not accepted. 
Abel offers up his worship to God, and it's pleasing in God's sight. There is one that is done in faith, and there's one that is not done in faith. And so, as we think about this commandment, it teaches us that we are people that are prone to resort to our own will, that we can become centered on our own intuitions, our own thoughts, rather than humbly acknowledging and submitting to God's will. This is what happened again and again in in the Bible. We read there in the golden calf with, with Aaron that when Moses is up on the mountain, Aaron takes all the gold and fashions a golden calf right after being given the law that you will have no graven images. And we think so quickly they've turned away. And the people are going to have worship. These are your gods who have brought you out of the land of Egypt. And we might think that they're turning away from God. This is a, break, a breach of the first commandment. But notice how Aaron speaks. Tomorrow will be a proclamation to the Lord. Capital letters. He's speaking about the covenant name of God. Aaron is doing this as an act of worship to the living God, the God of Israel. But he is worshiping in a way that is a great sin, according to the mediator to according to Moses. He has breached uh, God's law in doing so. Aaron didn't think that the Lord's presence uh, mimicked a calf. Uh, he wasn't actually trying to portray a photographic likeness to what God was. He was trying to represent the power of God. The calf, the bull, represented power in the pagan relation, uh, religions. That, that Aaron was trying to take that and he was trying to apply it. This is what your God is like. That he was using an image to try to convey to people. Aaron could have rationalized that this was necessary. That it would be through these images that it would help people in their faith. That it would help them to worship God more effectively. But, but Aaron's intentions are not the standard for acceptable worship. That acceptable worship is determined by what God has revealed. And God has revealed how his glory will be manifested. That we are to come to God in response to that revelation. And so ultimately it's not what I want, but what has God shown us about our sins, about the mediator, about his glory. And so when we think about this commandment, how does it apply to us today? It teaches us that as we come to worship God, it is only in and through the Lord Jesus that God will be pleased. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Listen to his words. Listen to what he says about your heart. Listen to what he has done. Come in and through him because it's through Christ that we have access to God the Father by the ministration of the Spirit, as Paul says in Ephesians 2. It is only in and through Christ that we have an access. It's not by making an image myself and saying, this is how I will come to God, but saying, how has God's glory been revealed? And I come in response to that. And so here it teaches us that our worship is to be shaped uh, by uh, the work of, uh, of God's revelation. God has revealed his glory and we are to come in response to it. 
human-centered worship can take on all kinds of manifestations. Uh, it can begin with despising or eclipsing what God has commanded. That God has declared that the, we are to worship him in prayer, in, in, in the preaching of his word. But we can begin to, to downplay these things by saying, I don't want to hear so much about the word of God. I don't want to hear certain parts of God's word being read. I, I don't think we should be so confrontational because people's self-esteem, it's going to drive them away from the church. And people can begin to rationalize how they want worship to be. But ultimately, it's aimed back on what their will is rather than on being centered on God's uh, will. So we can downplay uh, God's revelation. We can downplay uh, the preaching of God's word. We can easily begin to shape worship with the intention of welcoming more people, but losing focus on what is acceptable in God's sight. So Jesus not only reveals to us the glory of God, he not only shows us uh, who God is, but our worship of God is to be in and through him. It is uh, through him because he is that he is that high priest, because he is the one who offers sin on uh, up sacrifice on our behalf. It is because he is our prophet, the one who has spoken. There will be another Moses. Listen to him. You will be accountable for his words. That we are to come before God in and through Christ because he is our king. He is the Lord's anointed who is to lead the people in righteousness. And so it's through him that we have this access. And so God will approve of worship that is according to his word, that honors his sacraments, that honors his son. That's what Jesus is getting at when he says those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. They must worship him according to the truth of God's revelation, which is the son of God. And they must worship him by the enabling of God's spirit. Humbling themselves under God's word. And coming before God through the embodiment of God's truth. The word of God. The Lord Jesus. God will approve of this worship. And we can know of God's favor for uh, dealing with uh, our sins. This commandment not only teaches us that God is jealous about his glory, it not only confronts us about how we can skew things to being more human-centered, what we want, uh, than what God wants, but it also teaches us a promise that God will create a people who draw near to him with reverence and in response to his revelation. Again, as Jesus says in John 4, that he will uh, uh, create a people who are worshiping him uh, in spirit and in truth. So the image of the invisible God has ascended into heaven. The second commandment trains us then to look to the word and the sacraments, to know God and to know his presence. And it will fuel worship marked by reverence and humility and gratitude. Reverence because it is coming to a knowledge of who God is in his glory. Humility because we recognize ourselves as sinners. Gratitude because we know there is an access not by my own doing, but because the God who is has revealed himself and his glory, and yet I can still draw near. And so the second commandment continues to have force today. We live 
not making a representation of our own of what God is like, but living in light of God's revelation of his son and living with a longing to see God's glory. As we were looking at this morning, the glory of God will appear, our blessed hope, and then faith gives way to sight. Our worship then should be Christ-centered. It should reverence God's word and depend on his, on his spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would forgive us for ways in which we can become uh, so um, uh, uh, patterned by uh, the outward external acts and we neglect uh, to take all things in, uh, in consideration of your will. Lord, help us to be people who realize uh, that worship can be displeasing in your sight, uh, even as it was in the time of the prophets. Help us, Lord, to realize that it is only in and through uh, uh, the Son of God, the Lord Jesus, that we can approach your throne of grace. And we pray, Lord, that you would grant to us humility that worships you according to your uh, revealed will and by the enabling of your spirit. So, Lord, uh, guard us and keep us. Help us, Lord, not to uh, be content with uh, the externals. Help us, Lord, not to simply be fixated uh, on uh, uh, these uh, other matters, but help us, Lord, to see uh, the wondrous revelation of your Son and to be able to respond by the enabling of your Spirit. We ask for these